and thank you for joining us for In All Things, a weekly podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, stated clerk of the EPC. The motto of our family of congregations is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And thank you as always, Rachel. Always appreciate that kind introduction. For those of you who don't know, Rachel is uh, on staff here at the Office of the General Assembly and works in our benefits department. Grateful that she lends her voice to the opening of our podcast, In All Things. And if you've never joined us before, this is a podcast of the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. We drop an episode pretty much every Friday, and uh, we're now into our second year and approaching 10,000 downloads, and we're grateful for you being a part of that family and for liking and sharing with your families, neighbors, and friends the work of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. But as we get into our second year, we're starting to expand a little bit. We wanted the first year to kind of be a more of an internal focus and we've highlighted people who serve in the office of the general assembly by way of saying they're here to serve you we've introduced you to epc authors epc thought leaders and other leaders who are making an impact throughout the country and around the world from our global outreach to church planning to church health and evangelism to discipleship and effective biblical leadership we've tried to give as good an introduction to the epc as possible to get all of us into a common conversation around some of these gospel priorities and we'll continue to do that in our second year but we also want to expand a little bit more and start to have conversations with people outside of the epc who have a similar vision heart and concern for the kingdom growth where we believe that we have opportunities to listen to one another learn from one another and grow together and even collaborate in terms of kingdom opportunities and that's going to be kind of the focus at least the jumping off point of our conversation today is some kingdom collaboration with our brothers and sisters in the evangelical covenant order of presbyterians otherwise known as eco and we are delighted today to be joined by the synod executive of eco my friend dana allen so dana welcome to in all things Thank you so much, Dean. Thank you for having me. Well, welcome. So we're going to dig into that conversation in just a few moments, and I think you're going to find it um, really compelling. Dana is not only a great leader, but is a great friend. And you'll, I think, hear the synergy between the two of us as we talk about kingdom activities. And it's just absolutely one of my funnest things. And I will say, you know, just as one pastor finds solace in talking to another pastor, because only pastors sort of get what pastors go through, I will say Dana and I have found a lot of comfort in our friendship uh, as, you know, someone who helps guide, lead, and serve a denomination in the same capacity that I do. There are a few things that I can say to Dana that he doesn't get because he's living in the same world as I am. Like, for example, he woke up this morning and said, I don't know where I am. And that's part of that's part of the way our life goes these days. So anyway, before we get into that conversation, I do want to remind you that this episode of In All Things is brought to you by the EPC's Disaster Relief Fund. We have everything from forest fires in California to the devastation of Hurricane Ian here in the state of Florida. And so helping to do some of the relief, recovery, and rebuilding work, it probably is going to be a solid three years of commitments, particularly for our churches in the Fort Myers area at New Hope EPC and First Fort Myers. They will be receiving teams and looking for making concrete 
investments in the lives of their neighbors and family members and friends in that community for years to come. And so your support of the EPC's Emergency Disaster Relief Fund makes a big difference. A reminder that every penny that you give goes directly to that relief. There are no administrative costs taken out whatsoever. So whatever you give goes directly into the hands of a local church, because that's where the kingdom of God breaks in, and where they are reaching out to their neighbors with the good news of Jesus that is a part of the relief for building and recovery work in Southeast Florida. So if you want more information, please go to epc.org slash emergency relief, and you'll see those funds there, and you can contribute, or you can get your church to contribute, and know that you are part of the EPC family of churches making a difference for those neighbors who are really suffering at a time such as this. So let's uh, pivot a little bit, my friends, and talk about um, a different kind of emergency, which is the state of the church today, and trying to understand how it is, you know, post-pandemic, the church is in a different place than it was before, and it's going to require new strategies, new partnerships, new initiatives, new innovations, and one of the things I have truly valued in my time spent with the leaders of ECO is that they are by nature an innovative entrepreneurial, forward-looking, creative group of people who ground what they're doing in the gospel, but are looking for new ways to apply that changeless truth in circumstances that are just credibly, uh, I don't know if emergency is the right way, but but it, it feels like a bomb went off at post-pandemic, and we're all trying to figure out, okay, what's the landscape look like now? What do we do? And this group of, of uh, Jesus followers is being as uh, innovative and creative and faithful as any that I've witnessed getting after that. So it's a great delight to have as a part of our conversation today, my friend Dana Allen, the Synod Executive of the Evangelical Covenant Order of Presbyterians. So Dana, again, welcome. And would you give our audience a little bit of a background and introduction to you? Sure. Well, again, thank you so much for having me. Raised in Santa Barbara, my wife went to Westmont. Uh, We've got three kids right now. They're all in high school, senior, junior, and freshman. So life is uh, fun and busy. And I enjoy that work so much of being able to support and encourage our pastors and our churches as they seek to flourish in a drastically changing season uh, from what we've known before. Yeah. So as a pastor yourself, you know the incredible value of coming alongside and serving the local church and those pastors. And I do love that one of the words that you hear again and again and again in a lot of the eco communications is this notion of flourishing. And uh, why is that such an important concept for you guys? Well, I think the idea of flourishing, and it's not just popular among us, there's a lot of work out there being done. But part of the idea is, is that flourishing can look different for different organisms, but there's some fundamental principles. So a flourishing for a butterfly is going to look different from flourishing from an elephant. Just like our churches in rural places or in urban places, some of those are going to look different, but there's some fundamental principles that need to be in place in order for an organism to flourish. I'm also, uh, microbiology was my background, so I like that connection between uh, church and biological life and so right. forth. And so we we say that flourishing churches are led by flourishing leaders who are flourishing disciples. And all three of those things need to be in place in order for God's church to flourish. So unpack that in the context of eco then. So it, this this notion of flourishing churches, flourishing leaders, flourishing disciples, how has that impacted eco? Is, is how old now? And tell us a little bit about you know, kind of the trajectory from its founding to where you find yourself now kind of positioned for this kind of missional advance in the world. 
we are 10 years old. And when we started, there was obviously part of a need for theological clarity and consistency in an environment in which people then can have some freedom. So we say actually that there's high trust, low control, and high accountability. Say that one more time. Go over that again. Yeah. High trust. Got it. So we trust that people can live out their gospel calling in different ways. So we don't have a lot of one-size-fits-all rules. Right. So that's where the low control comes, and yet we have high accountability. We're highly accountable to our essential tenets. We're highly accountable to the things that are shells in our in our polity, and we encourage high accountability within our congregations. That um, the leaders are accountable to one another, and so we think that that is not a hierarchical thing, but it's really the aspect of being part of a body of Christ together. So I would think post-pandemic, that's not only terrifically winsome to people who are considering the church who maybe have never been before, because that's, that's just a really welcoming, engaging kind of culture. But I've got to think that's positioned you guys well to be able to make some of the adaptations necessary in, in terms of the changes that we've seen in our culture. Yeah, so one of the things that we put into our polity from the beginning, I came from a church where we were planting a new church, but we were doing it based on missional communities. And the idea is people would come to faith in the missional communities, but then they'd have to come and be baptized by, quote, the real church. Right. And then for us, we're saying, no, actually, that the church is wherever two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, we need accountability for leaders who might be celebrating the sacraments in those contexts, but we can give a lot of freedom in how to do that as long as there is that accountability to our essentials and to the training and teaching wow. needed. So that allows us to reach into some places for people who normally wouldn't walk into the front door of our churches. And the missional distance between where the church is and where our culture is, as we know, has gotten bigger and bigger. So it's less about trying to get people into church and more about getting church people into the world. Wow. That's a great paradigm shift, isn't it? Thinking about the church is uh, not just the gathered, but the scattered, and what is their missional responsibility in that scattered state, whether it's the workplace or whether it's their neighborhood or their community, that if those disciples are living out their faith in those contexts, that's really where the kingdom grows and advances. Yeah. It strikes me that as you're rethinking that paradigm and you're, you're creating that kind of adaptive environment, one of the important aspects of doing that is looking for collaborative places. You have a relatively small national staff like we are, relatively small national staff, and yet you exist to serve the local church and equip the local church because that's where the kingdom of God is breaking in. It, it strikes me that that kind of flexibility, that kind of paradigm requires that a kind of collaboration where others have resources to share that can be mutually beneficial. And so the kind of sharing out of best practices and collaborative efforts together that have kind of started to kind of form and shape our conversations, that's something that really is important to ECO moving forward, right? Absolutely. I mean, we see EPC as really, you know, our cousins in Calvin in many ways. <laughs> cousins in Calvin. Cousins in Calvin. I like that. I don't think I came up with that. Somebody did, but I'm borrowing it. But the idea is we have so much similarity in there that it makes sense for that kind of collaboration because there's things you really do so well that I am in awe of and I want to learn from. And I, I learn from you, Dean, and from, from others. I think there's things that we offer and ways in which we, we can indeed work together. And I think being in relatively small denominations compared to the larger kingdom forces that connection. And you are the natural partners with 
which whom that connection makes sense. Right. So let's just talk about a couple of those so we can take it from 30 or 40,000 feet down to about 5,000 feet or close to the ground. There's one place where we've already started to do some of these collaborative things. I, we had on our podcast a number of weeks ago, uh, Suzanne Zampella, who is an EPC pastor, but serving in an eco church as a transitional pastor. So you have transitional pastors is one of those collaborative places where we have a lot in common and can help one another. Absolutely. We are seeing such a need for transitional pastors and there are skill sets and our polity is similar enough that I think it's real easy for us to say we need highly skilled transitional pastors, not just interims that are filling in the pulpit. And that skill and that training is so important that let's collaborate on that together and let's realize that we have multiple places that are open and use our people across those denominational boundaries. So I love the fact that uh, you texted me after our general assembly and you said, okay, three circles evangelism we're all in how can we connect with that and i remember coming back from your gathering last january and coming to my team and say we need to make our general assembly more of a conference feel Mm. than maybe a business meeting feel because the truth is is that a front end of our general assembly which we used to call the leadership institute was where everybody came and then when we started getting into the business at the end of the week and some really important business people were leaving and so we kind of watched you guys and how you integrated those things and created that i think more of a, a best practices equipping kind of approach and that's caused us to go back and rethink how we do general assembly and you're going back from our general assembly thinking how do we do evangelism so some of that is just you know rubbing off on one another absolutely there's so much similar ethos there that is really helpful to say oh yeah so how do we what's the best practice how do we do that well and recognizing we also have some different challenges in our denominations and so how do we contextualize what we're learning in our own places. Right. right. And in those conversations, maybe there's an observation you have that hits one of our blind spots and helps us get unstuck in an area where we haven't been able to figure it out, or maybe we're able to offer the same thing back. So it just really, really fruitful conversations. And, you know, one of those is that when I think about theological preparation, education, you guys have recently launched uh, basically a, a new seminary. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's our Flourish Institute of Theology, and part of this was never on our radar to do or to want to do. And we, we know uh, most seminaries that are finding a lot of struggles or having to reinvent themselves. I really enjoyed my seminary experience. And yet, some of the things we need in the future, more co-vocational pastors, bivocational pastors, planters in immigrant communities, to try to get a, a $60,000 degree that oftentimes is disconnected from the local church, that we've we've spit out our pastors to seminaries or our potential pastors and say, bring us back a pastor, to say, no, how do we do that better in local ministry? So ours is a third of the cost for our degrees, and we really try to tie it in with local church ministry. So rather than writing a 10-page paper on Matthew well, why don't you teach a six-week series of adult education on Matthew and put some notes there so we know you've done your background work. But how do we bring those two things together, the education and the practical ministry, because that's really the way you learn. And the guy leading that, Mark Patterson, is just a gem. I mean, um, I've known Mark for years, and he's both that wonderful blend of kind of the 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 pastor theologian so he's he's, he knows where the where the rubber hits the road he's very practical and down to earth and he gets the local church and yet he's able to think at a way of how to 
think substantively about the most important issues. And um, we have a guy in the EPC who's similar, Kent Matthews, and mm-hmm. he's created this Heartland School for Ministry. And, you know, one of our conversations is what would happen if we put Mark Patterson and Kent Matthews in a room together and they start kind of bouncing off the walls? I don't think there's enough whiteboards in the room to capture what those guys might come up with. Yeah, put both of them on the podcast together here with you and yeah. we'll see how long that yeah, goes. Yeah, and then I'd need to get out of the way and watch yeah. the sparks fly and what happens. But we do have to be thinking about ap- adaptiveness and again, you know, you've got a, a young pastor who maybe graduates from a, a traditional seminary, which provides a real high quality theological education, but they end up with debt from not only their undergraduate degree, but now their graduate degree, and they may land themselves in a, a smaller or under-resourced church that doesn't have the ability to even pay them at a way that can sustain their family and actually repay their theological education debt that they've taken on. And so it's we're seeing diminishing numbers of people who are willing to go into ministry. And there's, there's still a great value in traditional forms of theological education. It seems to me, Dana, that it is incumbent upon us to have, like, there's no one size fits all, yeah. right? All hands on deck. There's no one way to do church. There's no one way to do theological education. And perhaps there's no one way to do even church plants. Which creates great flexibility and opportunity, and then it also says, okay, so if it's not just a launch large church model or it's not just this kind of education, how do we do it differently? We have half the people in our seminary are actually lay leaders mm-hmm. that are saying, now I can do a one-year lay leader certificate program, and I may be a commissioned lay pastor at a small church, or I may be a highly engaged volunteer at my own church and this is giving me the education and skills that are needed so we're finding it it's lifting the bar of everybody and it's not only adapting the cost issue but it's also saying most people uh, we found a big gap between people when they come out of seminary that not only do they not know the practical skills of ministry but they're not able to take their knowledge and integrate it into real life situations like conflict resolution like conflict resolution or taking our election and to say okay so you know this you can write a paper about it but how do you talk with someone who might be an elder who disagrees with that how might you explain that in a good and helpful biblical way and teach it so that they can understand it we don't care that you just know it we want you to know it but you have to be able to integrate it into context and so we're highly integrative in our approach yeah so our permanent committee that deals with that's called the ministerial vocations committee and they're really wrestling with what are we testing yeah you know because you can have certain knowledge base and say i understand the the doctrine of that but if you're not able to translate that in a pastoral context or a discipleship context then that head knowledge uh, and you know as presbyterians we're good at the cerebral stuff not always good at how that cerebral stuff translates into kind of real life life on life discipleship stuff Absolutely. And evangelism, I mean, we're finding there's a huge challenge with candidates just sharing their faith, and they really haven't had to do that. And so how do we help people engage in the culture and in those situations? So yeah, I I love that you're asking those questions too, because we're asking how, how do we make sure they're equipped for ministry? You guys are in a slightly different setting than us. We have so much in common, but you know, the EPC is 42, 43 years old. You guys are about 10 years old. And so on the one hand, you started out with, we can try all kinds of stuff, you know, and, and, you're, and you're sort of early on probably understanding yourselves in the context of where you've come from. But now at 10 years old, Eco is really looking at what kind of church should we be? 
what is the model in this day and time that is reformed and biblically faithful that is going to serve well in this new kind of missiological context? As, as Eco has kind of come of age, how have you guys dealt with those kind of changes? Yeah, that's a great question. And I try to, uh, because so many people will say, well, it would make sense that we are, for example, and I'll, just, I'll mention a little bit of this in a minute, but we've redesigned our whole ordination process um, around some of this. And people have said, well, it makes sense you would do this because you're new. Mm. And I want to say yes, and, and not that we're the Apple or Google of denominations, uh, certainly, but, but to say you get new updates for your phone all the time, right? We, we get new, do you always want to have your heart bypass surgery the way it's always been done? I don't. I mean, I, I hope I don't ever have to have one, but if I do, I don't want the way it's always been done. So what we're trying to say is we want to constantly be evaluating and updating and modifying in order to pr- produce effective ministry. Now, not everyone obviously sees that and and wants that all the time. I was going to say, do you have large buy-in on that as kind of a general direction? We actually do. I was very, when we changed our ordination, so we made it not presbytery by presbytery uh, in the same way because we saw some challenges and some inconsistencies. So we made a national process that's actually close, more closely mirrors a church planting assessment process. Okay. And we, they have an, uh, an assessment at the beginning that gives them a map for their ordination journey. And then they have a final assessment. We do a lot of different things within that. And as we rolled it out, we actually had done a little survey with our Presbyterian leaders. And 96% were positively in favor. A couple, you know, even had some questions. But I would say that a lot of people know that and they understand that. And they're they're willing to know that we're going to continue to look at how do we do this well and effectively. Quite frankly, it's a, it's a bit of a struggle for us because, um, you know, established as a denomination for 40 plus years, there's some fear on the part of those who have gone through the ordination process that if we change those things up, that somehow that's going to result in a lowering of our standards and that perhaps people won't be as well equipped for continuing to carry the faith from one generation to the next. What counsel would you give, I mean, if, if you were going to speak lovingly across the aisle to your EPC cousins, for those who are apprehensive of an entrepreneurial approach to reevaluating, I mean, I think every organization constantly should be looking at is what we're doing working, right? Right. But if people are fearful that that doesn't sound biblical or it doesn't sound, you know, it sounds like a, a modern construct to, to kind of like a business approach to this versus, you know, we want to just continue to be faithful and it's the original languages, Hebrew and Greek and nothing else. And, you know, we're going to go with the, the model that has gotten us here any counsel across the aisle that you would share with us of how people might consider where we are today and what kind of adaptive things you're learning and how that's helping to serve the church? Yeah, and I recognize the challenge with that conversation because we've actually find some people have been concerned about dumbing it down. Other people have said, our process is so much more rigorous now that they go, I don't know if I would have survived that. Mm-hmm. So even though I have the three-year MDiv residential degree, I'm not sure that I would have survived this process. And we do see that the outcome is better. So I would just say, to be open and free-handed enough to say, what kind of leaders do we need for this season of ministry mm. and to at least ask that what makes that the best the best path and then to say how do we form them 
So I'm curious because we haven't talked about this, so I honestly don't know the answer. In redesigning that process and asking those pivotal, really seminal questions, kind of leaders do we want? Have you guys in the ordination process factored in character development? Absolutely. I'd love to hear a little more about that. Yeah. We have a list, 10 core competencies of leadership. And we actually say these are 10 competencies that are across all leaders. Now, the level to which people need to demonstrate it is different. So a a pastor would need uh, a higher level of biblical knowledge than an elder, and yet an elder ought to be able to know things about the Bible. So that's one of them. But the first quarter of our of our competencies are all about the spiritual maturity and calling Mm. and we have a deeply forming process where our people go through emotionally healthy spirituality and then ruth haley barton's book and they do that in the context of a covenant group together and we assess that because quite frankly when i've seen churches blow up it's not over competency it's over character and sometimes it's outright character and sometimes it's they they don't have the eq or the ability to be able to handle those complex conversations without getting too much of their own ego involved in it, either to steamroll over people or to back off because the last person in my office disagreed with me. Yeah. So speaking of EQ, people can't learn emotional intelligence in a classroom. Yeah. They need to be in a cohort or in a kind of a setting with a group of other people who are able to kind of process those kind of experiences and reflect them back to one another. And honestly, I think that's a a real void in, in theological education and preparation is that there might be content development in terms of moral character, but not in terms of just emotional intelligence. Yeah. Well, we have, we do a true wiring suite of assessments and one of them is eq and we will oftentimes we do it at the beginning when they come into the process and then sometimes if people have low eqs or there's different you know there's six different scales in the eq process if people are low in those then we actually have a development process for them to be able to increase that and their mentor works with them in that area and that's why we say hey we're all moving toward ordination but the things you might need to be work on are different than this person over here That's phenomenal. One of your points that kind of prefaced all of this, which, you know, I'm going to take away as a talking point for our team when we go back, is that, you know, we should be thinking about, as we think about our our global workers when they're trained or our church planners as they go through assessment, why is that different than the way we prepare pastors as they move up? And maybe some of those kind of assessment uh, tools need to be moving into our nation process. So yeah, and and quite frankly, then too, how do we use that too for people's wiring? And we can do that. And we can say, actually, we think you're wired to be a solo pastor or lead pastor, right. or you're wired to be this way. So we try to do it not just ordination because there's some basic standards, but how do we help you figure out where you ought to take your first call and how? And it may be an associate, it may be a solo. So how do we help you in that journey? And so if you invest in that hard work, which is hard, that's not easy to do. That's long haul stuff. Ultimately, what you end up with is the pastor who is going to flourish. Absolutely. And a pastor who flourishes gives you a better chance of a congregation that's going to flourish. I'm hoping we have, not that we have a ton of disciplinary cases, but, you know, we have issues. I'm sure you don't, but we have issues in our congregation. No, we don't have any at all. That's good to know. Um, We do. And so when we get them, we send them over to you. That's great. Uh, But we said this is going to make a big difference 10, 15 years from now that we've hopefully created that environment that makes us more normative. Yeah. 
Well, I think that's something we could learn from you from, and so appreciate that. And our friendship and you coming in and spending the time today. Any last words to your EPC brothers and sisters before we close shop for today? Well, I just I thank you so much for what you're doing, and I thank you for the way we're learning from you. I mean, in in world outreach and in church planting stuff, and and I I really feel like the rising tide lifts all boats, and I love doing this together. And our world needs a reformed great awakening and i i think we're all on that journey together so i'm i'm thankful for the partnership grateful that the tide of the spirit is lifting both of our boats and we're we're in this thing together so amen amen well thank you man i really appreciate it and i appreciate all of you listening into this conversation and we're hopeful that you will share these podcasts with others Um, we think that kind of collaborative spirit and opportunity are something that we would love to see taking place in all of our congregations whether they're eco congregations or epc congregations because we're all getting after the kingdom work together so we close my friends with that good word from god's word as we always do just a reminder that this word will go forth and accomplish the purposes for which it has been established and i promise you upon the word of god itself it will not return void the sun is the image of the invisible god the firstborn over all creation for in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones powers rulers or authorities whether ordination processes church revitalization pastoral preparation all of these things have been created through him And, my friends, they're for him. You see, he's before all things. And in him, all things. All things. Inside the church, outside the church, across the totality of the cosmos, all things hold together. For you see, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the body of ECO. He's the head of the body of the EPC. He is the head of the body, the church global. And uh, in that, we take great comfort knowing that he is over all things. Until the next time we gather, my friends, in the name of the one in whom all things were created, I bid grace and peace to you. Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of Dean and the entire team, we hope you will join us for our next episode of In All Things. For more information about the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.